Rewind, your year in review, is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate. This program is brought to you from Wisconsinized Margaret Farrow Studio. This week on Rewind, we take a look back at 2023 and highlight some of the biggest moments that happen in state politics. They don't have confidence in our elections. We're disenfranchising voters. Plus, we explain which issues are likely to dominate the conversation next year. Wisconsinites care about fair maps in this state. All that and more on this week's Rewind special. Hi, I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Welcome to our very special show this week where we count down some of the top 10 political stories that happened. And boy, it was quite a lot. Yes. So let's begin with number 10. Number 10, we have prison woes. And the topic here, JR, focuses specifically on two prisons that have been on lockdown for a very, very long time, uh, and that is Waupon and Green Bay. Uh, we heard from the governor uh, towards the end of the year that he was going to start easing these lockdowns. And what these lockdowns mean is prisoners are largely confined to their cells throughout most of the day. Yes, they are given meals, but even activities. Some people don't even see sunlight. And we've seen a lot of protests uh, throughout the year outside these prisons with family members and advocates really calling for changes at these. Um, let's kind of first start with Green Bay because that one is the oldest in the state. Um, there's been a lot of calls for the closures there. And we've heard from a lot of uh, you know local officials there that are asking for more. They slightly celebrated the, okay, we're gonna start easing lockdowns. We're gonna start moving prisoners around a little bit um, to give them more space. But a lot of officials from that area just don't simply think it's enough. Yeah. So look, uh the backdrop here, too, is the uh, staffing shortages we've had for years in Wisconsin's prisons. It predates the Evers administration. It keeps getting worse. You have a combination of a good economy where there are better paying jobs or equally as good paying jobs. You're not dealing with prisoners every day. They had new provisions in the state budget trying to boost their pay, trying to find a way to bring more guards in. Then you have these two aging prisons, Green Bay and Wapon. I think Wapon predates Green Bay a little bit. Uh, oh. But either way, they're both back to the 1800s. Correct. They're both very inefficient prisons that have not great conditions. So now the question is looking ahead, what's Evers gonna do? Now this budget, probably not anything, right? You could always fund a new prison, but for the governor, um, he ran on a platform in 2018 the first time to try and reduce state's prison population. He wanted to get out nonviolent offenders, have these reforms. Well, the population hasn't really changed a whole lot. It did dip during COVID, uh, went down uh, by a few thousand, but that was largely because of a backlog of cases in circuit court, the county level, they weren't transferring people to prisons. Now we're back to pre-COVID levels in our prison population. And the question is, how are you gonna address this? For Evers, if you were to build a new prison, it would be a con contradictory, contradictory message to your, gain, your aim to like reduce the population. Mm -hmm. At the same time, if you were in theory to take Waupon and Green Bay, close both of them, open a new prison that could be a situation in place that had more, uh, better, bigger population around it, because Waupon is kind of in a small community, harder to find people on top of everything else. Find someplace, put it up in Green Bay maybe. You could possibly have a more efficient, better designed prison, these ones from the 1800s, that could be staffed by fewer people and house the same number of folks. But again, what would the governor do? Oh, by the way, it ain't cheap to build a prison. Oh, yeah. Talking 400, 500 million dollars. So in the 2025 budget, 
Will there be a push to build a new prison and to fund it to capital building projects? Right, and you know, we've also seen the governor and Democrats in general try to propose initiatives that would try to reduce the prison population by letting out uh, nonviolent offenders. Uh, but Republicans are just not there mm -hmm. yet. They, that is something that they are very against. We also saw Democrats uh, around the fall uh, propose a huge package of bills that would largely uh, seek to improve conditions in our prisons, give more uh, access um, to electronics. Say you could FaceTime your family if mm -hmm. you're in lockdown. <clears throat> excuse me, those type of things. But those bills are very unlikely to go anywhere. So there's been these attempts, but given you know Republicans and Democrats not seeing eye to eye on this issue, looking ahead into the new year is it's going to still be a challenge and remains to be seen what will happen if it's a new president, like you said, or unfortunately kicking the can down the road. Yeah. All right, let's get to uh, number nine, and that is state tax cuts and because we have a state surplus still. So right now the state surplus is at $4 billion. And I was looking back at some of my stories, JR, and it has been almost two years since Republicans and Democrats have been able to reach an agreement on issuing tax cuts to Wisconsinites. You hear from Democrats who wanted to target the middle class. Then you have Republicans who largely their proposals that have been introduced have impacted the most wealthiest Wisconsinites. So they both are not, you know, anywhere near each other. Uh, of course, the governor vetoed uh, the tax cuts that Republicans put into the state budget. And now we're hearing that Republicans come 2024 are going to be introducing a new plan that would uh, uh, give some tax reductions to your retirement income. So it would be only applying to a select few. But we heard from Assembly Speaker Robin Voss say that he hopes just having this and not having a huge tax cut plan could hopefully reach consensus in the new year. That remains to be seen. So in the budget, you know, they wanted to basically take our four tax brackets, collapse them down to three, and lower the, ra the ra rates, especially in the top two. The governor signed only one piece, about $135 million, $140 million of a several billion dollar package. Uh, we kind of figured going into the budget uh, signing process, the governor's going to veto the top income tax bracket reduction. The third highest bracket was a little bit of a surprise to some people. They thought maybe he would sign that. And that's the one Republicans keep bringing up again and again. They've tried several times more to bring that one back. The governor has not moved. They thought they could be pressure him on that. It has not moved either, either him or Democrats. So look forward now. Uh, the $4 billion service we talked about, that's projected. We still have a ways to go until we get through 2025. But if everything holds as it is, okay, we've got this money. Now what? Evers is now taking to this tack of saying, okay, you guys want to cut taxes again. If you do these big tax cuts, it could put us in a hole for 2025. It could threaten funding for schools and everything else. He's holding that line about uh, a big tax cut. That keeps that pot of money there. So the start of 2025, which we think might be Evers' last budget, don't forget, um, the governor hasn't said what his plans are mm -hmm. for a third term, but we kind of think he's not going to run for a third one in 2026. This could be his last big budget. Oh, by the way, we have a different legislature to deal with that last budget in 2025 than what he has right now with a supermajority in the state Senate for Republicans and a near supermajority in the state Assembly. Could that give him something different that he could get a, a more of an Evers-like budget than what's been happening where 
He struck some big deals this year in the budget with Republicans, but didn't get what he really wanted out of that thing. Right, and talking to GOP leaders just over the past few weeks uh, about looking ahead to taxes, one idea that is often uh, presented around an election year is issuing one-time checks, using some of the state surplus to give it back. We saw it during the Walker administration. Evers also tried to do that, but Republicans quickly shot it down. Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahieu called it kind of gimmicky, Mm -hmm. and he's not going to go that route, even though he said, well, I support it in the past. I mean, the Republicans did do this under the Walker administration, but um, it's not likely going to go that route, because I think that is something that is worth discussing. Well, if you're not going to reach an agreement, you know, hey, just put a check in my mailbox. Most people will be pleased with that, but it doesn't seem like they're going to go that route this time. All right, uh, let's move on to topic number eight, and that is Republicans targeting diversity, equity, and inclusion. We've seen uh, plenty of stories on this throughout the year, JR, and it all really began in June when Assembly Speaker Robin Voss uh, said he is going to withhold funding from the universities of Wisconsin until uh, they show that they are going to use this money for something else. Uh, He asked them uh, in the state budget that present me a workforce proposal. After that, yes, uh, UW System President Jay Rothman did present that. The legislature hasn't acted on that uh, quite yet. Then it was, all right, we want to make an agreement with the UW system on curtailing DEI in exchange if you want this $800 million bucks. Now, that money would pay for um, pay raises uh, to 35,000 UW employees. That was approved, but there's still building projects. There's a lot of strings attached to this package, too. Republicans got things, university got things, but who's the real winner in this end? Really, you know, People are saying different things. Yes, $800 million is a lot of money, but they had to give up so much as well. There's also pieces of legislation that still need to prove, like the reciprocity bill, um, and also um, allowing high school students that finish in the top 10% of their class, they would be able to be automatically accepted into U- any UW school. That threshold for UW-Madison would be 5%. All right, I just highlighted kind of everything there. Um, but the bigger picture here of what we want to highlight is this is not done yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, Voss is still threatening that he still wants to eliminate uh, DEI at the UW system, and now he wants to launch an audit come January to further examine DEI across all state agencies. This really kind of began, I don't know, some February or March. He was on the uh, radio show in Milwaukee and started really talking about DEI. And we kind of got interested, like, well, what's he mean? And mm-hmm. <clears throat> asked for a list of DEI positions at UW System, Universities of Wisconsin, I'm sorry. Uh, got a list of what they were and how much they make in salary every year. That became kind of like part of the Voss argument. And it's interesting, I had this, I've used this before, but I was told by somebody once that Ron DeSantis has Disney as his, like, foil the wokeness. Robin Voss has DEI. This is his cause. It has been politically beneficial for him in several ways. One, they feel like there's a good uh, issue to rile the base. Two, don't forget Robin Voss has struggled with Republicans at the conservative base for a while over rifts with Donald Trump and everything else. This has kind of helped him get a footing with Republicans, kind of get a little bit of a rebound, and he feels like this is a cause. Like, he is really enamored with this issue. You look at this deal he struck, and yes, the universities of Wisconsin agreed to freeze DEI positions and move a third of them to something else that they don't have to do anything different when they've been moved to a different category. They can still do the same kind of thing. So, no, by the way... No one's losing their job, per se. No one's losing their job, and it's $800 million. But when the regents voted it down the first time, it gave Republicans a huge boost message-wise that they had them on the defensive. These guys were going to give up $800 million for this. It really... I had one Republican this week argue to me that it helped the Senate Republicans like rally around the idea of doing this because if those guys weren't appreciative or weren't going to get there the first time, maybe it's a good deal. 
because really there aren't huge changes for UW. There are freezes, yes. There's going to be a, a fundraising drive for a conservative uh, a professor to teach conservative thought, essentially. Some changes. Um, they have to give up a uh, not, not, not use affirmative action in, in admissions, which they can't anyway. Yeah, the Supreme Court the said you can't. Mm -hmm. right, so a lot of this stuff, China probably going to have to do anyway. But messaging-wise, Robin Voss really had the upper hand this entire thing. Now, mention the audit, uh, state agencies. Robin's going to dive into what else is in there in 2025, assuming he's still around. Uh, there's election next fall, don't forget. And the question becomes, how far can he go and what can Tony Evers do to stop them? Uh, Republicans in the legislature have the power to set spending levels for agencies, to set number of positions. They can't do that position-wise with UW, but they can with other agencies. What can Tony Evers do with his veto pen to stop those things, if anything? Because he can write out various things, but he cannot write up a number. So if they say you have 100 employees in this agency, he can't make it 200 or 300, right? Mm -hmm. Let's see, it's really, really creative. Um, so that's going to be a really interesting interesting battle in 2025 about DEI. And you talked about kind of the messaging, the dueling messaging we're hearing on this topic, and that's kind of going to ease right into, we're going to be playing some videos throughout the show kind of highlighting um, a lot of the message and kind of the strong words that we heard on some of these topics. And in specifically what we hear from conservatives is that they believe DEI is a form of indoctrination. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Democrats believe it is super beneficial in the workforce and it makes the state more welcoming. They are also now beating on the drum that this can help our workforce issue. You know, if if you, you hear from Republicans mostly that uh, we have, you know, we're at a war for talent. We need to bring people here. And Democrats, well, if you if you want to make people come here, well, if you're going to cut DEI, Democrats believe that could uh, impact our workforce as a whole. All right, let's just hear a little bit from the governor and Assembly Speaker Robin Voss with both of their messaging on this issue before we go into the next topic. For some reason, he's got to be in his bonnet around the issue of DEI, for God's sakes. You look at any major industry, even smaller industries in the, st in the state of Wisconsin, they care about diversity and equity and inclusiveness. And somehow our, our institutions of higher education should be banned from doing it. Frankly, um, I think it's ridiculous. And I think the people of Wisconsin think it's ridiculous too. We need to have a university system that represents the entire state. Uh, right now, we have a system that does not. Since the year 2017, I think the university system has hired uh, almost 1,700 employees with declining enrollment. So it seems to me that if they have the resources to be able to hire 1,700 additional people, they don't necessarily uh, have the need for some of these things. The legislature is not going to stand behind the idea that we can have a system that focuses on division, indoctrination, and exclusion at the expense of the rest of the state. All right, let's move on to topic seven, JR, and that is abortion laws. Uh, plenty of things to highlight in this topic given the timeline of where this all started. You know, you go back entering into 2023, we had this lawsuit, but it's taken many, many months to resolve. Um, now, abortions are legal once again here in Wisconsin um, because the case is in the lower courts. We had a Dane County judge indicate earlier in the year that she was going to rule this way. And that is basically the law of the land right now that uh, the state's 1849 abortion ban does not apply to consensual medical abortions. This in turn resulted in Planned Parenthood clinics, the three main ones, Sheboygan, Madison, and Milwaukee, to resume services. Um, and this, of course, um, was filed uh, uh, shortly after uh, 
Janet Protasiewicz um, became a new justice on the court, which swung for the first time in 15 years to 4-3 liberal control. Now there is an appeals process, uh, and this is the latest on the case right now, um, which is from Sheboygan County District Attorney Joel Omansky, who is asking the state Supreme Court to take his appeal directly because he believes he wants them to rule on this issue immediately um, to kind of get the ball rolling, to, to figure out um, what are, I guess, you know, how, how can we let people know what is the law of the land while this other lower courts is kind of working out the issue right now? Yeah, you mentioned how long this lawsuit has taken to work its way through <laughs> Dane County Court. Part of it was that uh, Democratic Attorney General Josh Call originally sued lawmakers. Uh, he then changed it to three district attorneys, the ones who were in the counties where abortions were being performed by Planned Parenthood pre-Dobbs decision, Dane, Milwaukee, and Sheboygan counties. Ermansky is the only one of the three that indicated he wanted to enforce 1849 law if it applies to abortion. Um, the others have indicated that they had no interest in doing that. So now, um, Ermansky, Schlipper, first Diane Schlipper in the summer said, basically sent the strong signal, like you said, about where she was going to end up. Issues the ruling it, only, that 1849 only applies to feticide, not to essential abortions. Ermansky then notifies the court, I'm going to go to the Second Court of Appeals in Waukesha County to appeal this. But as he is making that procedural move, he's also now going to ask the Supreme Court to take the case directly. Now, what that means is, the court has the option, doesn't have to, has the option to bypass the Court of Appeals and hear the appeal. We know it's going to get there eventually, right? Mm -hmm. It's a question of when and how quickly they rule. So, uh, Ermansky just makes this request. We will see that sometime, we think, in the early part of 2024. Then we wait for the court to say if it wants to take it. Um, in the meantime, abortions are legal in Wisconsin, at least in those three counties that are being performed. Correct. And there is no ban. What's been interesting, though, that so much of the abortion going on, Robin Voss wants to do uh, this referendum-type bill to try and have the public weigh in, or maybe a 12-week ban. Because right now, the 20-week ban still is in effect in Wisconsin. But it's interesting to watch, like, the anti-abortion groups. They're not really rushing to embrace this idea of going to 12 weeks. They want to see what happens with the court decision first because, quite frankly, they don't like the 1849 law. Don't forget, back in March, Robin Voss and other lawmakers, Republicans, had proposed exceptions to the 1849 when we thought it was basically right. in effect mm -hmm. to add exceptions for rape and incest. Devin Lemahieu said that day, it's not coming up in my house. That shows you that there are Republicans who don't want to alter or add exceptions. There's a split there, and they're in a box politically about abortion. So this whole idea of going to a referendum, because if they can get the public talking about when abortion should be legal, not if it should be legal, to them, it's better it ground for them. The, yeah, yeah, it changes the conversation. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what we've seen, too, um, looking into, kind of hinted at this, into 2024, what will be interesting is the timing of this decision. Um, we've talked about this on Rewind shows before, JR, of, you know, it could potentially be beneficial or not so beneficial when the ruling comes down, because we know it's been a huge motivating factor to talk about women's reproductive rights for Democrats. Meanwhile, Republicans have really struggled with the issue. We saw that plain and clear in the midterms. Now, of course, Senator Ron Johnson still won. I mean, John mm -hmm. Leiber, too, state treasurer, he, he did fine. Um, but the trends have not been well for Republicans. And this is also a you know, national issue as well. We've seen now uh, uh, President Joe Biden's administration. We have Vice President Kamala Harris coming uh, to the state in January to launch her reproductive tour. Um, and it, it, if, if they keep talking about this issue, they hope that it will still be a motivating factor. But if this is decided, say, March, um, May, is it still going to be fresh of people's minds heading to the ballot box come November? I think is the big question going forward. Yeah, and well, if Trump is the nominee for Republicans, he did appoint the justices who overturned Roe v. Wade sure. with the Dobbs decision. So I've had Democrats argue if the state Supreme Court issues a ruling and finalizes it in Wisconsin, 
there's still that federal issue that they can use to drive people next fall. We'll see. That's a, a long ways away. That is a long ways away. All right. Let's move on to topic number six, and that is Megan Wolf, uh, the administrator of the Wisconsin Elections Commission, who was fired by the state Senate on September 14th. And since then, oh boy, oh boy, this issue <laughs> has not been resolved. And when, I think, is the look ahead to 2024 of when it will be resolved. So, sh- like, Almost immediately after she was fired, we had a lawsuit by Attorney General Josh Call saying it was um, uh, the, the, the Senate had no authority um, to oust her. She has still stayed in the role, and she has been adamant that I'm going to stay in this position until a court tells me otherwise. Haven't really seen a lot of movement mm-hmm. on this lawsuit um, and, and where it will end up, but the main argument from Republicans is that the Bipartisan Elections Commission should be appointing a new administrator. Her term ended in July 1st. There should be someone else there. They fired her, but Democrats saying, no, you can't do that, that wasn't lawful. So it's almost this tit to back tennis match that's going back and forth, but nothing is gonna happen until we get some resolution from the courts on this issue. The Elections Commission has to have four votes, it says, to appoint a new administrator, okay? During this process, there's a vote back in the summer. It was a 3-0 vote. The three Democrats abstained from this vote about a new term for Megan Wolf. They argued that she then was allowed to hold over in this position, which is a key phrase because that stems from a state Supreme Court decision about a DNR board member, that you know holdovers can stay until there's a replacement confirmed. They argued, okay, she's in the job legally. Devin Lemahue told us he had legal advice that actually no, it's three votes. So he pushed this onto the floor for a vote. We found out later on, the attorney said, yeah, we're going to concede it really was symbolic. It wasn't a true firing. So here we stand. Megan Wolf is still in office. And oh, by the way, there have been two resolutions uh, introduced to impeach her in the State Assembly. Um, the first one had five co-sponsors. It had 15 articles, I think, of, for reasons for impeaching her. It was referred to committee and has gone nowhere. Now, it was referred because Robin Voss has to refer it. Anytime you're the leader of a house and you get a bill or resolution, it has to be referred to committee. So Robin referred it, but it sat there. Uh, David Steffen, Republican, who's the, co- the chair of that committee, has said, once the sponsors can get 50 votes and showing they've got support to pass this thing, then I'll move it. Robin Voss, meanwhile, is being targeted by the Wisconsin Election Committee, Incorporated, this group of people who are focused on Megan Wolf, that if he won't replace her or move this impeachment resolution, then they are going to either recall him or replace him with a primary challenge. Robin. I'm sure he's told you the same thing. He's dismissed this as mm-hmm. people uh, focused on 2020, obsessed with 2020. He's not worried about it. But we do have an election next fall, and he only survived his primary challenge in 2022 by a couple hundred votes. So what's going to happen in 2024? Oh, by the way, again, if Trump is a nominee, not predicting he will be, but he looks pretty strong right now, will Robin Voss want to be in the ballot with Donald Trump? I mean, there's all kinds of layers. Yeah. Like there always is a state government, uh, state politics with this, but a lot happening, and right now we await the court to rule because the judge's decision saying you cannot replace her through the joint committee of organization and the Senate didn't fire her. It didn't talk about impeachment. So in theory, they can move impeachment, but nobody's moving it right now. Right, and even Robin Voss said that it is very unlikely mm-hmm. that these impeachment articles will reach his floor. Um, but impeachment in general, he's still keeping the option open. There can be something that some corruption in office. Yes, he's not ruling out there will never be impeachment articles in his chamber, but when it comes to specifically Megan Wolf, he said it's very unlikely. Let's take a look back to September 14th and hear from Megan herself and Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahieu on this issue on kind of um, 
Megan Wolf defending herself and her vote, and Lemmy Hugh uh, talking about the reasoning behind it. Wisconsinites of all political affiliations deserve to have faith in how the state's elections are facilitated. Three WEC commissioners and interim administrator Wolf have shown blatant disregard for the appointment process and the laws of the state of Wisconsin. They've cast unnecessary suspicion on the integrity of Wisconsin's election process. The vote today represents a lack of faith the people of Wisconsin have in Megan Wolf to serve as administrator of the Wisconsin Elections Commission. During my 12 years working as a nonpartisan election official, I've learned that when politicians on either side of the aisle are upset with me, it's usually because I will not bend to political pressure. The Senate's vote today to remove me is not a referendum on the job I do, but rather a reaction to not achieving the political outcome they desire. So, Jared, what would you say is the number one thing that you're watching specifically with this lawsuit related to Megan Wolf and her future as administrator? Well, the attorney for Republicans trying to focus this suit on one issue. Did the election division have a duty to appoint somebody at the end of this four-year term that Wolf had, initial term? So we'll see what the judge decides what she wants to focus on, but that's what I'm watching. Will there be a decision about whether it had a duty that it must appoint somebody new every four years? All right, let's now move on to topic five, which is the redistricting lawsuit. And we got a pretty quick decision on this, JR, that the state Supreme Court has ruled that the state's legislative maps are unconstitutional. Now, there's no real surprise here on this decision, given we even heard from Republicans, you know, Robin Voss saying, we're getting new maps, we're ready for this. Um, you know, the question ahead is, you know, what are new maps going to look like? And where this challenge could possibly not be the end of the road by any means. So don't forget uh, this entire process, Republicans said that Janet Prose should not have heard of this case, that she was biased. She called the maps rigged in the spring election. Also, the state Democratic Party basically gave her $10 million to help with her campaign. They have argued, therefore, there is a due process problem here. Now, what I'm watching is, can Republicans get the U.S. Supreme Court to intervene and take the case and find a way to put this back beyond 2024? The key there is, back some years ago, there's a Caperton decision, we call it. U.S. Supreme Court ruled that a West Virginia justice of that Supreme Court should not have heard a case uh, because a donor had put like $3 bucks into helping him get elected. Now, that amount of money was the bulk of what was spent in that race. $10 million is a lot of money, but $56 million was spent at least in Wisconsin, if not more. Um, so there's one difference. And two, the justices left in the U.S. Supreme Court who heard that case back in early 2000s we're all in the minority, all conservatives, all now in the majority. Will they still stay with that same they had back in that decision saying they didn't want to set a stick, they didn't want to force this person off that case? Huge question. For Republicans, though, this entire thing is can they push it beyond 2024? Their idea is can we live through this election cycle with the maps we have right now, which are great for them, by the way, mm-hmm. get to 25, another Supreme Court election, by the way, that spring, it could change things and then fight the fight then at the 2026 cycle. For Democrats, this is huge, you know, to have this uh, map, what's this going to look like? Obviously a huge question, but anything is better than they have right now. Right. Yeah. The map, we have a supermajority in the state Senate. We have a near supermajority in the state Assembly. You know, there is a, a buzz I've heard from Democrats in recruiting candidates because they could not just be saying, okay, we want you to come to the Assembly and the Senate to hold back against the supermajority, but to actually have decent numbers. Now, I'm not saying a, Democrats are going to win. And a better win. chance, yeah. right, at picking some up some of these legislative seats. I'm not saying Democrats are going to win majorities right. in either house. But it's a lot different story than being, okay, we're 11 Democrats in the state Senate. 
can we get to 15, 16, maybe someday 17? That's a, a huge opportunity for them. Right, possibly have a little bit more say in some of the big issues. Mm -hmm. All right, move on to topic number four. And over the next few topics, we're gonna talk about some big legislation that got through. And we're gonna start with four, and that is the Brewers Bill. Um, this was a big, big uh, bill that was bipartisanship. Uh, you had Milwaukee officials involved. You had the Brewers involved. You had Republicans have a say. You had Democrats have a say. And boy, oh boy, there was so many changes to this mm -hmm. bill, JR, leading up to even the final minutes when the Senate approved this uh, last month to try and do some wheeling and dealing, some arm twisting to get enough votes as there was a possibility um, that a lot of Senate Democrats weren't going to join Republicans in voting for this because of so many things that were incorporated this. Some of the main arguments is that Democrats wanted more from the Brewers um, and they, they overall just didn't think this was a good deal, um, many of them. Uh, looking back at the Bucks Arena deal compared to this, there's a lot of comparisons there. But in the end, they got it done. And it was a rare form that we saw uh, Republicans, Democrats, and the governor all show up at a press conference and praise this as a good deal for Wisconsin, now that we know the Brewers are here to stay until 2040. So remember, the first incarnation was Governor Evers saying $290 million in state money, state money alone, given up front from the surplus we have, invested, and then it keeps them in town until 2043. Republicans are never going to let Tony Evers drive the plan. train. Yeah, yes. Right. So, but there are also Democrats who are like, hey, wait a second, what are we doing giving money to a team owned by a very, very wealthy individual? Then the changes began, right? We started like a $700 package. They kept getting tailored a little bit down. The big changes in the end, right? Milwaukee County and city got a spot on the district board uh, through an appointment to the governor. Um, lowered, a comp lowered contribution. Lowered too. contribution, a ticket surcharge, but only on non-brewer events. There was some consternation about not sitting at the brewer events. And they're going to promise to look basically at development around the stadium. So those are the big things that kind of happened. Keeps him until 2050, but looking forward, what's going to happen in 2045 and 2046? And they say, okay, we've had the stadium now for almost 50 years. It's, it's past its usefulness. We've got to build a new one. Right. Then what's it going to cost? Uh, and are they come back to taxpayers for more money? And oh, by the way, the Brewers' this process did not play this very well PR-wise. I mean, we talked this before, but one minority owner put his house up in California for sale for like $25 million. Uh, Mark Anastasio bought a stake, a bigger stake in his soccer team in Europe. Like, they just didn't seem to kind of realize like what that message kind of sent. Of like, you want those taxpayer money and you're investing stuff there or selling a house for that much, don't you have the money on your own? But this is the price of doing business in professional sports. If you want to have professional sports franchises, the reality is this is going to happen. And the argument became, if the Brewers leave, we lose that money. It's cheaper to keep them. Heard that in 2015 with the Bucks, I believe, or 17, whatever it was, the Bucks deal. Same thing, cheaper to keep them. There's revenue off of that team that is going to help us as a state overall. And oh, by the way, one way that paved this, uh, the path for this deal was to make everybody get more money. So the part of revenue collects a fee from everybody who has a sales tax. I think it's 68 of the 72 counties have one, something like that. Milwaukee City also is going to have a sales tax now starting in January for that pension deal, shared revenue. Revenue, Department of Revenue is going to keep less of that fee every year to collect the tax from retailers and then disperse it to the counties. So it became an argument of, hey, everybody benefits. If you have it out state, you get a benefit. But it also helped Milwaukee County and City because there was a huge push by Republicans to get a local contribution. They had to have buy-in. Well, the state is basically paying for the county and city's buy-in through this arrangement. That's why the county executive mayor kind of like, hey, we like this deal <laughs> because it actually treats us pretty well. We have the combination of this and the sales tax revenue. We're going to be okay.
All right, and that just tees up right oh. to our next topic, Jared, talking about shared revenue. Number three, and right here on the screen, too, you see two of the, the, the lead authors of this bill, which is Representative Tony Kurtz and Senator Mary Felskowski. Um, we heard this the end of last year, that this was going to be a top priority by Governor Evers and Republicans. And once again, it took a lot of changes and uh, transformations of the bill to get people on board. Um, in the end, though, I would say Milwaukee's, you know, Milwaukee Mayor Kevin. Johnson, Milwaukee County Executive David Crowley weren't really pleased with it, but it was the first time. You got to give them credit. I saw them a lot in the Capitol. Mm -hmm. They were lobbying with lawmakers. They were trying to make this somewhat bipartisan. Um, they didn't get everything that they wanted. Yes, they are getting ultimately what they wanted, I should say, of course, more money. This is going to pump a lot more money into local communities to help them pay for fire, police, and a lot of other essential services that has not seen a, 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 pay, a pay bump in a very, very long time. A lot of communities have been strapped and have been having to close fire stations, a lot of smaller communities, stuff like that, or consolidate into two. Um, going back to the Milwaukee provisions, you know, they had to say, well, you're going to have police officers back in schools. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to do this. So you're going to have changes to your pension. So, I mean, XX, blah, 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 blah. So it's like the list goes on and on. Um, but in the end, I think everyone has to kind of give everyone a pat on the back that they got this done after they initially said this is kind of going to be our first priority heading into 2023. If you told them in the Capitol two years ago that Republican lawmakers would approve a one-cent sales tax for Milwaukee County and city, period, they'd have said no way. The fact they're both getting a sales tax, that is a major uh, win for them. Mm -hmm. And to Felskowski and Tony Kurtz, they basically said, okay, look, there's not a great option. It's fascinating, two outstate Republicans bought into the idea of we have to help Milwaukee. If Milwaukee fails, we're all going to feel the pain as a state because the pension system, their, their obligations were so large, if they weren't addressed, it was going to create a ripple effect throughout the rest of county and city government that would hurt services, lay off other employees, and cause a major problem. They said, we got to do something. So to their credit, they found a, a provision that worked, but also don't forget the Milwaukee provisions DEI and Robin Voss. That's right. Mm -hmm. This is Robin Voss's cause. This was like the Republican wish list for Milwaukee. They couldn't pass stuff over Evers' veto the last couple of years. They put it in this bill, and the Milwaukee County City had to take it because they didn't have an op another option. It's either that or go bankrupt, right? I mean, they were dancing pretty, <laughs> they had to make a decision. We kept hearing from Milwaukee uh, officials of, oh, let's wait for a better deal. New maps are coming, wait for a better deal. Those maps aren't coming until 2024, if they come. Mm -hmm. You're not guaranteed a new majority in the legislature after 20. That's 2025. You're already in a hole. Like, that's not going to happen. So that literally went out with um, uh, lawmakers in the end. It passed with bipartisan votes, I believe, in the two houses. Again, Milwaukee wasn't thrilled. Leaders about the provisions they have to swallow, but in the end, the money is, they just couldn't walk away from it. Right. It was taken, once again, a lot of wheeling and dealing, arm twisting, and it was eventually signed by Governor Evers on June 20th. Uh, let's just take a listen to uh, Mayor Cavalier Johnson uh, talk about this proposal and kind of his pitch, because it's a little bit, it was a little bit before um, the bill signing of him just kind of touting about what this would mean for the city of Milwaukee. There are areas here where there are disagreements, um, but what remains is that we continue to discuss these matters and work together in a bipartisan, collaborative approach to solve the problems. This legislation starts to diversify revenue sources for the city of Milwaukee. 
uh, it starts to increase the amount of shared revenue that goes to the city of Milwaukee and other units of government across the state. And it puts Milwaukee in a path to resolve its onerous pension obligations. Milwaukee's future is important to the entire state of Wisconsin, not just here locally, not just here in the city, but Milwaukee's future is important to the entire state of Wisconsin. All right, let's move on to topic number two, and that is the state budget that was signed into law by Governor Tony Evers. Of course, there's so many highlights to get through here, JR. Um, I think the biggest controversial one um, that I want to bring up is Governor Evers using his veto pen very, very creatively. And that was when he used his pen uh, to basically expand um, a 400-year school funding uh, uh, to keep that funding uh, open for mm -hmm. school districts to continue that aid. Um, you know, we'll see if that withstands yeah. <laughs> um, because that was so unusual. But, I mean, a lot of state agencies um, got a big bulk of, of change there. And we kind of talked about this earlier in the show, too, about him vetoing uh, part of the tax cut that was very unpopular among Republicans. And there's still this uh, issue going forward of what they're going to do with taxes. So, surprise, surprise, uh, Republicans rejected almost everything that Tony was wanted in a state budget, um, various tax hikes, expanding Medicaid, go on down the list, legalizing marijuana. I mean, like, they pulled hundreds of things out like they always do. They sent him back a budget that they wanted, but they actually reached some deals this time, mm -hmm. school funding. So, yes, the governor uses veto to extend uh, the increase in school funding or per, per, the cap per pupil aid, yeah. going mm -hmm. years. So what happens in state government is local schools can uh, spend X number of dollars per student. It goes up most of the time, but not all the time. That increase, the more state aid you get, the less you rely on property taxes, right? So that cap is here, state money goes to here, the rest is property taxes. He has put into place a annual increase for years. Now, your property tax bill you're getting, or you got this month, yeah. not impacted by that veto whatsoever. That was part of what Republicans agreed to with Tony Evers, but in future budgets, they would keep that cap going up. It can be changed at any time. It's not in place for hundreds of years for sure. Uh, they can agree to a new one. That was a big thing. They reached a deal on school funding. They reached a deal on shared revenue. Now, it wasn't all done in the budget. Yeah. Republicans found ways to keep it outside the budget because they wanted to not allow Evers to veto things, that powerful line on a veto. But the budget, I mean, it sets so many things, so many policies. It's the, the bill that has to pass every two years. And now we look forward again. $4 billion projected surplus at the end of this biennium in 2025. Tony Evers will still be there. What will the composition of the legislature look like in 2025? who will be the players, and what will be the issues. If this is Tony Evers' last budget coming up, um, will he go for the gusto, if you will, try something big? We know he's an education governor, wants to put money in education. Is that where he's going to go with things? Or does he try to, is there some big deal if he worked out? They, he and Robin Voss have not exactly been best of friends, time they've been in office together. But is there, after this session, with these big deals on shared revenue and school funding, is there another big deal to be had in the next budget, that's what I'm kind of watching. Right, and what we also saw through the process is, you know, you get always these state agency requests, they go through joint finance, they testify about what they would need. I mean, never is a state agent getting everything that mm -hmm. they want, but they all got a little piece of the pie. And the, the constant argument that we heard from a lot of issues like childcare, school funding, Democrats always stress those two important issues, is that Republicans wanted to keep reserves. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going on in our economy right now. There was all these warning signs of a possible recession. Even, you know, a few years after COVID, it was still there. And that's 
typically what conservatives talk about, and that's why they still like to have that little cushion mm-hmm. um, in the rating day fund and also the projected $4 billion surplus. They want to give most of it back for, you know, the tax cut. Evers right. rejected that. Um, so the question, they keep pushing tax cuts. So will we see a message in 2025? So Evers, again, what's he going to push? Republicans, probably going to push tax cuts. Now, the economy goes south next year and a half, two years. It could change all bets Everything. are off about that next budget. Right. Evers is trying to make that argument of we should keep this reserve now. We shouldn't do a big tax cut because of what comes down the pipe, but I'll expect we're going to keep pushing tax cuts in the near future when it comes to state finances. All right, we're finally here. Yeah. Number one is Janet Protosiewicz elected to the mm-hmm. state Supreme Court. It was the first time in 15 years uh, Wisconsinites uh, flipped control of the court from 4-3 uh, conservative to 4-3 liberal. Um, big lead that Protosiewicz had over her uh, conservative opponent, Dan Kelly, who was a former state Supreme Court justice. And on election night, um, I was at the Protosiewicz camp. We had another reporter at Dan Kelly. Um, Protosiewicz, typical victory speech. Dan Kelly kind of took a few jabs, uh, seemed a little upset about his defeat. Let's just hear, uh, I guess, take a look back at both of those victory speeches, or the victory speech and the Lucy speech. Too many have tried to overturn the will of the people. Today's results show that Wisconsinites believe in democracy and the democratic process. Today I'm proud to stand by the promise I've made to every Wisconsinite that I will always deliver justice and bring common sense to our Supreme Court. Our state is taking a step forward to a better and brighter future where our rights and freedoms will be protected. And while there is still work to be done, Tonight we celebrate this historic victory that has obviously reignited hope in so many of us. I've traveled this state talking about the difference between the rule of law and the rule of Janet. How important it is to conserve our constitutional heritage. And why it's so important that we keep that constitution strong. Because that's what protects our liberties. And it brings me no joy to say this. I wish that in a circumstance like this, I would be able to concede to a worthy opponent. But I do not have a worthy opponent to which I can concede. Beyond the big headline of, of course, liberals now in control of the court, was this was the most expensive state mm-hmm. Supreme Court race in U.S. history. We're talking 50, like 56 you had a really good tally throughout the year, $56 million spent. And that is just astronomical compared to others where it's five, maybe eight. And remember when we thought $10 million was a lot in state Supreme Court races? So that's what I could track. I was told by a number of operatives that I was probably five, ten million bucks light in what was actually spent in this race because, like, digital ads or something like that, I'll never see the reports mm-hmm. for it. But that tells you what was at stake with this race, too, right? So Port of election changes everything in Wisconsin. Yes, we're talking about maps. That's obviously a big thing abortion, um, Act 10, go on the list of what could be at stake for that court. Also, it, people don't even focus on this too much, but it changes who's going to make the final calls on election policies in Wisconsin in 2024. So yes, we have an elections commission. Yes, it is charged with like passing rules to how elections should be run. They don't agree on anything. I know, by the way, when they pass rules, Republicans aren't happy with them. They suspend them. So when there are going to be issues about drop boxes, which were banned by the court, by the conservative majority last summer, there are cases in the court system right now to try and bring them back. Absentee ballots. What's the standard for a witness? Do you have to have a witness? What, what has to be on the information in the absentee ballot envelope could go back to the Supreme Court? 
that court now is the ultimate arbiter of how elections are run in Wisconsin, and it could be a much different standard than what we had in 2022. Just one example of the many things that have changed because the court composition is different now than what it used to be. Well, also, you got to think if President Trump is the eventual nominee, if he wins or doesn't win, will there be a court challenge? Yeah. I mean, could we see even a reversal here? Of course, there was plenty of Trump lawsuits seeking to overturn the results, challenge the results, ballot drop boxes. They thought all of these absentee ballots should be completely uh, or should completely not count. Um, and then there was recounts. But on the reversal side, I mean, some conservatives have said, well, you know, if, uh, you know, Trump wins. Will Democrats try to challenge somehow the results? I mean, there, there's a lot of possibilities. Um, but even talking about the issues, you know, you brought up Act 10 possibility, right to work laws, abortion. There's there's so many issues that I think uh, Democrats and liberals got very excited about these opportunities to overturn a lot of these Republican victories that have been touted, you know, since the Walker era. Um, and We've talked about this on the show before, JR, that if we see all of this rush, let's go, let's take up all these issues before the state Supreme Court, could it backfire mm-hmm. come 2025? Because like you said, we have another state Supreme Court election that is likely going to be just as a contentious, just as expensive possibly. And it could, again, give conservatives back control of the court because of who seat is up. So liberal Amos Bradley has said she's going to run again. She first elected in 1995. So we shall see if she actually seeks re-election, but she says she's going to do it. Uh, former Attorney General, Republican Attorney General, has already said he's going to run, uh, seek this office. Okay, we've got somebody already in the pipeline to run. That seat is key. And when I've talked to people about this race, looking ahead to 25, their opinion has been that if you can avoid the court going too far. So, yes, they're, t- they're probably going to wait on abortion. Yes, redistricting is something before them. But... They were asked to take up a case to overturn the school voucher system and said, we're not going to take it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay? that's right. So if they had taken that case, if they get into business liability issues, you could really fire up the conservative base financially and really give a Brad Schimmel or another conservative a leg up financially in that race. That race is key because once you get through 2025, if a liberal, if Ann Walsh Bradley wins re-election, in 26, conservative Rebecca Bradley, in 27, conservative Annette Ziegler, 28, liberal Rebecca Dallet. You are guaranteed a majority for liberals at least through 2028, and that's, they wouldn't have a chance, conservatives, to flip it again until 28, and only if they can hold those two seats in 26 and 27. That's a lot to pin on. So you can see where this race in 25 is going to be really uh, major for who controls that court for the near future. And again, could it be as expensive as the last one? Sure, if, uh, as much as at stake, right. if people get excited about it, but that's why I'm kind of watching these issues going, okay. Are they going to take everything? There's an Act 10 lawsuit, not the Supreme Court, in the lower but in courts. Dane County Court. When's that going to get there? How long is that going to take to get to the state Supreme Court if it goes up there? Right, and I think also some Democrats are worrying, hey, let's slow yeah. down a little bit. We don't want too much red meat to go into the other base. All right, well, that will do it. Thank you so much for joining us to highlight some of the biggest stories uh, throughout 2023 and looking ahead to 2024. That will do it for this week. I'm Emily Fannin. And I'm J.R. Ross. Thanks so much for joining us, and Happy New Year. This program was brought to you from Wisconsin Eye's Margaret Farrow Studio. Rewind, your year in review, is sponsored by the Wisconsin Realtors Association. Bringing Wisconsin communities to life with great homes, businesses, and neighborhoods. The Wisconsin Realtors Association, the voice of real estate. <laughs>